that Paul loved lists. You know, in seminary, I had a, we had to take a speech class, and I had to, um, we, we spent two whole weeks learning how to read Paul because he loves his lists and he's so difficult to read. So hopefully you got that um, and you were able to keep up with that. So there is a, a story about a pastor at a certain Presbyterian congregation. Uh, at a session meeting, he got into a, particular, a particularly intense fight with one of his elders. They were butting heads about some minor detail of worship. It seemed minor, but to them it wasn't. And tempers were flaring, things were getting heated. And, and then after the meeting, as the, the elder walked, stormed past the, the pastor, the, the pastor said, you know, I think we should all go home and we should pray that God would give us peace in our hearts. And so the next Sunday after, after worship, the, the elder came up to the pastor and said, I took your advice, I went home and I, and I prayed. And the pastor said, that's great. I also went home and I prayed. I prayed that God would give us peace in our hearts and that we would have the, the ability for a fresh start. And the elder said, well, that's not what I prayed for. I prayed that God would help me to put up with you. (laughs) That, of course, didn't happen here. Church conflict is nothing new. It's as old as the church itself. And and really, that should be no surprise to us. Whenever there are gatherings of people, there is bound to be conflict. And that is true even among people that we like, people that we choose to associate ourselves with. But then as we start to have gatherings of people uh, with differences and diversity and sometimes divergences, those arguments, those feuds, the potential for those feuds only intensifies. And that was certainly true in the earliest days of the church, that the church really brings together not necessarily, not only diverse people, but divergent groups of people, people that are at odds with one another. You know, this is the the mission that the Apostle Paul commits his life to, to bringing together two divergent groups, Jews and Gentiles, and them living together in community. That Paul sees the truth of the gospel, the gospel being worked out as these two groups of people can live together in unity, that they become a unified body. And I think that that word unity is especially important because it's not uniformity. It's not all of us being the same or thinking the same, but it's us being united in all of our differences and sometimes all of our divergences. Unity will always lead to conflict because we are learning how to live and how to exist together. So if there is one community in the letters that we have in the New Testament that exemplifies this struggle towards unity, this potential towards conflict, than it is the Corinthian congregation. They were a hot mess. Conflict was tearing them apart. By the time that we read 1 Corinthians, this community is only a few years old, and already conflict is tearing them apart. There is the threat and the potential that this church will not exist much longer. Uh, We have two letters from Paul where he is addressing these conflicts. Uh, He alludes to the fact that he has written another letter before the one that we have come to know as 1 Corinthians, but it's been lost to time. So so Paul is, is helping them to work through these issues, and Paul is uniquely positioned to help them to work through these conflicts and these feuds. Uh, Paul was their founding pastor. He was there for about 18 months. He uh, helped them to establish the church. He built relationships there. But it almost seems like Paul was the, the glue that held this congregation together because as soon as he's gone, the fighting and the feuding starts as soon as he's no longer there. And so he writes this 
to help them to deal with the issues that they are facing. So what's going on for the, the Corinthian congregation? Well, let's pan out a little bit and get a, a wide-angled shot of life in the city because churches always exist within particular contexts. And so I think that the, the mark of a healthy church is one that is seeking to address its context. But also its quirks, its little personality traits, always reflect the context that it exists in. So Corinth was a port city. It had two ports in it, and it became exceptionally wealthy because of all the trade that flowed through it. Then about 150 years or so before Jesus was born, the Romans came in and they completely destroyed the city, uh, raised it to the ground. Uh, They either enslaved or executed the inhabitants who lived there. And so the city is abandoned for about 100 years until eventually the Romans come in and they rebuild it and they establish it as a Roman colony. And so the inhabitants of this newly rebuilt city are formerly enslaved Romans. Uh, They come to Corinth for the social and economic opportunities that it provides, opportunities that they can't find anywhere else. There is the possibility of upward social mobility in Corinth that they can't find anywhere else in the Roman world. So, for example, in most places in the Roman world, you could not become a high-ranking city official if you had been formerly enslaved. But in Corinth, you could. So you have this Corinthian community, this Corinthian church, forming in a city that is only a few generations removed from these founding colonists who have arrived seeking this upward social mobility. And so Corinth was a was an incredibly competitive place. Everybody was trying to climb the social ladder. Everybody was trying to gain some status for themselves, trying to secure wealth and prosperity. Maybe we could say that everyone in Corinth was pursuing the Corinthian dream. And so as it often happens in highly competitive cultures like that, some make it and others don't. One scholar says that there was extreme economic stratification within Corinth. The top 1.5% of people owned 20% of the resources. The rest of the 10% owned the next 20%. And everybody else, the the bottom 90%, lived in poverty, lived hand-to-mouth. They lived paycheck to paycheck. Stop me if you've heard this before. So in the city that's caught up in this rat race towards upward mobility... Appearances mattered greatly. How much money you had, how well you spoke, how you dressed. They lived in a culture war. And what's amazing is that Paul and these members of this church are able to form a community from all of these differences and divergences that exist within Corinth. They're able to to form a community of rich and poor, of the haves and the have-nots, and the Jews and Gentiles, and they all come together in common mission and in common purpose. But their greatest strength was also their potential greatest weakness. One scholar has noted 15 different sources of conflict in the Corinthian church. And it will relieve you to know that I will not go through all 15 of those here this morning. But just to point out a few of the bigger ones. One of the biggest questions for the Jewish members of this community was, can you eat meat that, is offer, that has been offered to idols. So Corinth is a Greek city. Uh, different gods and goddesses are worshipped there. There's a temple to the goddess of love, Aphrodite, there in Corinth. And so there are offerings that are made to her. And so the question is, can, uh, can the meat that has been offered to these gods and goddesses be consumed by Christians? And, and it may seem like a silly issue to us, 
But there are things that we are debating right now in the church, the, the wider church, that future generations will look back on and say, well, that was kind of a silly thing to debate. Why does that matter? And then you have this really big division that's forming around the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper in the earliest days of the church is not the kind of sacrament that we imagine it to be or that we participate in now. It didn't look like the table that we have here set in front of us. And, you know, they, they weren't using little bread and cups. They certainly weren't using to-go cups that they all had to, to fiddle with at communion time to try and open, right? It was an actual meal that the community shared together. And the goal of that meal was that social hierarchies would be broken down, that everybody had a place, there was equality and inclusion, that everyone had an equal standing as they celebrated uh, the Lord's Supper. But what was happening in Corinth was that the wealthier members of the community felt like they were entitled to more and better food than everybody else. And so what they were doing is that they were getting in line before everybody else for the church potluck, and they were filling their plates full, and they were gorging themselves and going home full when the poor members of the community were going home hungry. The people who needed the food the most that the community had to offer were going home hungry. So what is supposed to happen at the Lord's Supper is not happening. Social hierarchies are being reinforced. And then we come to this section that I read for us here today, that wonderful list of spiritual gifts that Paul gave to us. It's a conflict surrounding gifts and, and the abilities of the things that the members of the community have to offer. Just as it was in the case within wider Corinthian culture, bent on appearances, bent on status and achievement, the Corinthians were elevating some gifts above others. And one of the most highly valued gifts everywhere in the, the Roman world was that of rhetoric, the ability to captivate audiences, the ability to speak well. So people who were really gifted at rhetoric, they were like the, the superstar athletes of our today's culture. Like they were the, the celebrities. Everyone loved people who could speak well and captivate audiences. So what the Corinthian congregation is doing is they are elevating that gift above all of the other gifts and abilities and passions that other members of the community might have to offer. And this is absurd, Paul says. He says, it is absurd to elevate some gifts above others, some talents and passions above others. It's as if, Paul says, it's as if the, the various parts of the body said that they weren't actually parts of the body because they weren't another. So it's like saying that, it's like the ear saying, oh, I'm not an eye, so I'm not part of the body. Or a, a foot saying, well, I'm not a hand, so I'm not part of the body. What happens when you need to walk somewhere, when you want to smell it's absurd, Paul says. Its absurdity is revealed in the fact that it is destructive to the body, and the body literally cannot function without all of the members of the body working together. And what Paul says is that it's the seemingly weaker parts of the body that are indispensable to its functioning. What he says to these competitive, uh, striving Corinthians is that those who seem to have the least to offer, those who no one in Corinthian culture and society would pay attention to, they are actually some of the most important parts of your community. He is giving them a message that is completely contrary to their understanding. It is not the wealthy and the powerful, those who are gifted in rhetoric, those who have the most money to offer, who address the best, who are the most important. Because the fact is, no one person, no one gift, no one ability is more important than the rest. All abilities, all gifts are equal and all are indispensable to the functioning of the body of Christ. 
Just as it is absurd to say that the, the hands are better than the feet or that the eyes are greater than the ears or the nose, it is absurd to say that any other part of the church body is better than the other. It is absurd to say that the pastor is greater than the laity. The Reformation figured that out over 500 years ago with the idea of the priesthood of all believers, that all of us have a ministry, all of us have a calling. It's absurd to say that one committee is better than the others or the, the elders are greater than the deacons or that the, that the uh, musicians are greater than the tech team. It's absurd because all of it coming together is what forms us into the body of Christ. And I think that that image of a body is so important these days. I think it's been the thing that I have reflected on most over the course of the, the two years of this pandemic is that, the body of, that we are the body of Christ, that we are not primarily an institution, we are not primarily a social club, we're not primarily a geographical place, but we are a living organism. We are a living body. We are united together with all of our variety, all of our differences, and yes, sometimes all of our divergences. The, the church is really a countercultural thing these days where people are kind of retreating into their echo chambers, into places where we already agree with one another. The church is this bringing together and this forming into a body. It's a body in the sense that every part works together, and as it does that, it leads to greater functioning. It's a, a body in the sense that when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. And it is a body as it is brought together in mission and in purpose. In Paul's understanding of the church, we are the living body of Christ. We are literally Jesus continuing on in the world, in this community. We are the continuation of Jesus' ministry. We, Christ has no body here on earth but ours, Teresa of Avila said. That we are people who continue to do the things that Jesus did. We continue to seek justice and to build the kingdom of God all around us. We continue to serve the poor and to feed the hungry. Everything that Jesus did, we continue to do as we are united together in our variety of gifts. The truth is, we need each other. We need people who have an ability to see the bigger picture, whose heads float off into the clouds with their big dreams. But we also need those practical-minded people who can bring us back down to earth and to say, how are we actually going to make this happen? We need people who can manage budgets and who can deal with finances. We need artists and musicians. We need right-brained people and left-brained people. We need extroverts and introverts. We need those who are deeply committed to a life of prayer and contemplation, and we need those who are committed to a, a life of justice and, and mission in the world, uh, that have a burning passion to see justice be made real. We need those who are passionate about teaching our children and, and our youth and have an understanding that they are not the future of the church, but that they are the church of right now, and they have things to offer to this community right now. We need empaths and we need engineers. We need people who can understand technology because honestly, where would we be without them at this point? And we need the different generations. The younger generation needs the older generation. The younger generation needs to be reminded that life gets better, that things are okay, that God's faithfulness endures through every generation. And the older generation needs the younger one as well. A reminder that the world has dramatically changed. And so how are we going to be faithful in the world that is constantly shifting and changing? 
We need each other and all of our gifts and all of our variety. No one part of the body is better than the other. You know, this coming Wednesday is a little bit of an anniversary for me. Uh, it was the first day I was in the office one year ago this Wednesday. Um, it's hard to believe it's been a year, right? It feels like I've been here a lot longer than that. Um, not because things are hard, but be, just don't take that the wrong way. Um, let's just blame it on the pandemic. Let's blame everything on the pandemic. Um, and one of the things that I've been engaged in over the last year, I told this to the, the session and to the deacons that I've been engaged in what's known as balcony time. Uh, that was a piece of advice I got when I was first ordained was to take balcony time in every new place that I go. And, and that's not literal. We don't have an actual balcony. Uh, it's metaphorical. So sitting and watching how the church operates, watching how the church functions to get a sense of how the church I- is functioning. And uh, one of the things that I have noticed about this place is that there are so many amazing and capable people here and that we all want to see your gifts and your talents and your passions come out and to be used and that they are used to help build up uh, the body of Christ all around us. And I think that that is what makes this a really special and unique place to be, that all of you want to be involved in the life of this community. It was said at the beginning of this transition that the leader has changed but the mission has stayed the same. And the mission has stayed the same because we have continued to use our gifts and our talents to continue to be united and brought together. That is what makes us the body of Christ here in Berkeley, Michigan, and in Michigan, and in our surrounding communities here in Oakland County. That we are the body of Christ because all of you bring the best of yourselves every single day, every single time that you are here. And I, and I said in my... Uh, annual report, my, what I offered, I said that you all inspire me to bring the best of myself every single day that I am here. We literally could not be the body of Christ without you. And so as we prepare ourselves for the 11 o'clock service to, um, or to, well, to install new elders and deacons, they've all been ordained before, as we get ready for a new class of elders and deacons, We celebrate all that this community has to offer and all of the ways that it knits us together and makes us into the body of Christ. A year later, I'm grateful for every single one of you, and I'm grateful for the ways that we continue on in the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen.